0: I like the sense of security that I have where... Should the world stop and money stop coming in, my kids will be fed. My kids will be clothed. We won't have drastic consequences. We won't be asking the government for help. We'll have it under control.
1: Welcome to the Canning Plus Seven Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man, podcasting to you from Billings, Montana. On this episode of the Canning Plus Seven Podcast, I redid the podcast with Natalie Thurman. As you recall, I had a podcast with her that I took down because I did not like the way it sounded. This podcast sounds a whole lot better, and I think you'll agree with me. Natalie Thurman is from Southern California and moved to Arizona to get her nursing degree. However, instead of getting her nursing degree, she got married and moved to Montana and became a prepper slash homesteader slash livestock guardian dog breeder slash consultant. Natalie likes the Anatolian dogs, and so we discussed six reasons why she thinks Anatolian dogs make great livestock guardian dogs, also known as LGD. We also discussed training dogs and how consistency is the key. I asked Natalie if training dogs is a lot like being a parent. She laughed and said yes. We discussed signs that the puppy that you might bring home and the adult dogs are getting along just fine. We discussed ways that the puppy can be introduced to the adult dogs when the livestock guardian dog owner picks up a brand new puppy. I then asked her, what she likes about being a homesteader slash pepper. Then we talked a little bit about guns. What guns does she like as a homesteader slash pepper? I am extremely excited about this podcast, and I am confident that you will enjoy it as well. Thank you very much for listening to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. It is the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I am Kevin Williams, the blind Montana Man. Welcome to another edition of the Canning Plus 7 podcast. And yes, I am redoing the podcast with Natalie Thurman, If you heard it before and didn't like it, well, great. This podcast is for you and me. I didn't feel too good about it either. Uh, Natalie's my guest. Natalie owns a school called Northwest Guardian in Western Montana. She has 10 plus acres. She breeds Apex, or no, she breeds breeds Anatolian dogs. And her website is apexanatolians.com. That's A-P-E-X-A-N-A-T-O-L-I-A-N-S.com. How are you, Natalie?
0: Good, Kevin. How
1: are you? Not too bad. Uh, Great to have you on here. I'm glad you uh, agreed to redo the podcast with me. I felt really stupid uh, after doing that podcast, but we're going to redo it. And actually, I redid this at the uh, suggestion of a friend of mine who said, if you don't like the way you did it, then redo it. I thought, okay, well, I'll take his advice. So here we go. So uh, (laughs) you had uh, quite the experience of getting an Anatolian dog. I guess you got one similar to that. Uh, back in 2010 and then you decided a few years later to try and get another apex anatolian or an an anatolian i keep wanting to say the word apex but an anatolian (laughs) where did you get the name apex for your website anyway though
0: yeah um apex is just my account name for the akc anatolian shepherds um apex is like it if you look up the dictionary, it means like the top. It also is used for commonly for apex predators, which just means the top of the food chain. So in our area in Montana, we have multiple large apex predators, um, wolf, both kinds of bear that you get here and cougars. So I thought it was a fitting name for dogs who work um, in congruence with apex predators to keep our livestock and our homes safe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Seem like great dogs. So we're going to go over six reasons. And once uh, we talk about one reason, uh, go ahead and reply here. Reason number one, they have mid-temperant, they have mid-temperant relative. Okay. I'm going to murder this name. Sorry. S-A-R-P-L-A-N-I-N-G. Oh,
0: no. uh, Sharp Pondonauts. So Um, Compared to some other breeds of livestock guardian dogs, which is a it's a complete subtype of the working dog class, Um, like Rottweilers are working dogs, but they're not livestock guardian dogs, they're just guard dogs. Um, So there are about 30 breeds of livestock guardian dogs across the world. Um, Most of them originate from either Europe or um, Asia. Um, there's and there's you know there's not a whole lot that originated in america like there's no native lgd breed to america um there are people trying to make their own but they're not solving a problem that hasn't already been solved with one of the existing ones so it's kind of a like why um but yeah so anatolians originate from turkey um they are it's kind of an umbrella term it's um the breed of anatolian shepherd is not accepted in Turkey. Um, there are multiple reasons for that, mostly because their people acknowledge uh, Kangals, which are the typical tan color. We call it fawn with a black mask, which just means they have black around their face. Um, and then they have regional variants of livestock guardian dogs that live in different areas. They're, they're more of a land race type, so you could have variation in color, coat length, even size, um, across different areas, whether you're in a, you know, a low, um, like valley region, that's like flat plainsy, or if you're in a mountainous region, um, the type of dog that has thrived there for multiple generations can be different. Um, sorry, we have, I guess the air force flying over right now for inexplicable reasons. Um, that's new.
1: Um,
0: I don't think they care about LGDs. They're just very loud. Yeah, um, your so dogs I might apologize. care
1: about them though.
0: <laughs> uh, my dogs would not appreciate the noise. <laughs> They'd bark back. Yeah. Um, so yeah, basically the Anatolians. They come from Turkey. Um, other breeds, especially the Eastern European and um, Asian options. So the the are from former Yugoslavia. So Macedonia. Um, Serbia, that that area there, um, the their cousin, the Caucasian Ch- Shepherd or Caucasian Ovcharka um, from like Russia area. Um, those are considered harder temperament dogs, along with the Central Asian Shepherd or Central Asian Ovcharka. Um, These are dogs that are um, sharper in personality and they are sometimes more reactive. Um, Many of those dogs have been militarized, which just means that they've been bred with non livestock guardian dog breeds to increase human aggression for use in things like military uh, prison guarding stuff. That's not guarding goats and sheep. (laughs) So um, someone who's looking at a dog, for their homestead or for their family farm, or even just their family. If they have like, you know, kids, they would really prefer not be carried off by wolves. Um, and they're moving into an area where they know that could be a possibility. Um, I really like the Anatolian shepherd because they there's like, you know, there's a good variety in the breed. If you need a harder temperament dog, you can find it. Um, but what I prefer is for more of the mid-grade temperament. I want a dog who will listen when I tell it what to do, uh, not just give me the finger. And I also want a dog who is child soft, which means um, any puppy that I raise and sell is uh, what I like to call manhandled by my semi-feral farm children from basically birth. Um, they, My children help me with all the um, early neurological stimulation, withholding the puppies um getting them used to you know general sensitivity towards children they have really good bite inhibition on board which means that they don't bite friendlies um and if they ever did it wouldn't be hard to draw blood so um stuff like that is really important when you're looking at a, one of these dogs and um you can also of course always get a, a fluffier breed <laughs> that is definitely an option but um, you know, I, I, just, I haven't found that more hair is better. Even in Montana, we get between, um, about 105. I think we hit like a hundred and yeah, we hit like 107 this year, which is I think the hottest oh, yeah, I've ever seen brutally
1: it. got totally hot this summer. I was shocked.
0: It was nasty. Um, yeah. so that's our, our like highest high. And then our lowest that I've seen on our property is minus 27, like below zero Fahrenheit. So, um, that's a bit of a swing, um and just to like plug, I've I've had dogs, I've had knots for which is a doozy of a word, and there's no reason you should know how to pronounce it. Um, they are a longer coated breed and I've had them running with Anatolians and Anatolian crosses for years now. Uh they don't do any better in the in the winter and they don't do any worse in the summer as long as they have water and shade. So coat length is more of a preference. Um, then it is a weather-dictated necessity. Um, What you do want to look for in one of these dogs is a proper double coat, which means they are able to shed out that winter coat in the spring and or summer, if they hold on to it longer. Um, One of my Shars always held his through August. I'm like, why are you still holding your winter coat? I think he was just a prepper at heart, and he really wanted to make sure that he was ready if we got like a random frost in the middle of July which has happened. He wasn't wrong. Uh, but it drove me crazy cause then he was blowing like a ton of coat in August, which is not the time of year I have scheduled for dog grooming. <laughs> so, um, as long as they can blow coat completely and they can be healthy. Um, there's a lot of, especially like great Pyrenees, um, lines that don't have proper coats. Um, a lot of breeders are not breeding and considering proper shedding coats, on these dogs, they want the fluff. They want the cute puppies that look like polar bears. Um, and while cute puppies are great and cute adults are fine, um, if they're impeded in their job, which is living outdoors primarily and being able to run down and or intimidate predators off your land. If they have birds stuck in their coats, they can't run properly or they're limping because they're matted up and they can't actually get full motion. Um, that's not fair to the dog. And it's not going to have best results for you as the owner. So, um, yeah, I like that the Antonians have a shorter coat. They still put on that thick double coat in winter, the undercoat, to keep them nice and toasty and insulated from the cold air. But, um, yeah, they they don't need the big fluffy coats.
1: Now, I, I assume do they, they shed during the summer, correct? You said that somebody... One of the, one of your dogs kept the coats on until July in case there was a frost or something.
0: Oh, I was just being funny. Um, oh. no Duke, my old shark, he would not blow coat in the spring. Most of these dogs will blow coat in the spring. Once we hit about, um, about 12 hours of daylight hours. Um, the sun is what triggers the hormonal change and the, the coat drop.
1: Oh, okay. Uh,
0: usually. So just like your chickens will start laying again. In force, once the sun comes out more, your double-coated dogs that are more in tuned with being outside and the sun patterns will start blowing coat, which just means they start shedding um, all that undercoat, that fluff. That's not their coat that you see when they're walking around, but it's under that that insulates them from the out- outdoor air and weather. Um, so they should blow that in the spring to summer. And then they should put on new coat starting around August, September, building up for winter.
1: Okay. The other thing that I found interesting, and maybe you can elaborate on this as well, by the way, we're going to talk about breeding and some of the experience of training dogs. Now, Natalie is not a trainer though. She is a breeder. Let's make that clear. But I'm sure that she obviously has trained her own dogs and has witnessed others training, but let's talk about this Anatolian here, the Anatolians. There is a wide variety of patterns for those that like to tell their dogs apart at 100 yards and also a wide variety of colors. Explain to us how that all works.
0: Sure. Um, So, yeah, that's on my website. So basically what that means is you can have anything from a white or a cream colored dog to a almost black dog um, that's brindled. Um, I've got a dog who is a black based Brindle. So she's mostly black and she has some red striping on her. Um, So obviously you could tell the difference between a tan dog with a black head from a black dog with some striping from a white dog at a decent distance. Um, Something that a lot of people bring up when they have uh, guardian dogs especially like, you know, um, great Pyrenees, for example, they're the most popular. So that's why I just keep bringing them up. Those are those big white fluffy dogs that you see more commonly than anything else. Um, they all look the same at a distance pretty much, unless you have a badger mark, which means they just have some markings on their, um, ears and they can have some spotting on their bodies. But if you have the typical pure white great Pyrenees and you have four of them, you don't necessarily know which one is like going somewhere you don't want them to be or in the wrong wrong pen. You have to get pretty close to them to figure out like, oh, this is Fred. Um, So I I do enjoy having some variety in my dogs and their coloring. Um, As far as coat goes, while they don't get as fluffy as a Great Pyrenees, there are what we call rough coat Anatolians, which have longer hair. Um, And by hair, I mean their guard hair that stays year round, not the stuff that they blow and regrow every year. So um, you can have a rough coat and you can have one that has really, really short guard hair um, that is more the classic look. And they put on winter coat the same and they are both sustainable in winter weather. So the coat length doesn't impede them or help them. It's just a, a preference sort of thing
1: all right good to know so i would i guess each anatolian has its own pattern its own distinctive pattern just like everybody has their own distinctive voice so you can i guess what if you have an anatolian and someone else has an anatolian and there's similar patterns is that when you'd want to put a collar with their name on it to distinguish if the patterns are because i would imagine there's probably cases where the patterns look almost identical
0: Sure. Yeah. They. I mean, they can have white markings. They can have no markings. Um, so if you're having trouble telling your dogs apart, um, other than like, you know, a microchip to actually permanently identify them for medical use, like knowing that they got their rabies vaccine when you oh, think yeah. they did. Um, yeah. You can definitely utilize collars. Um, there's no issue in that. I like having like bright orange and bright pink collars just in case hunters come around. Yeah. So they can definitely see a collar on my dogs. Um but I I do I do use collars. Um I because my dogs are different looking, I don't necessarily use collars to tell them apart, but it's definitely an option. Um there are many colours of biothane that you can throw on a collar for a dog. So you can definitely color code your dogs if if you're dedicated to having them all look pretty much the same.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other reason here, the last reason that I wrote down, according to your website, is easy to make the pedigree chart of a dog, and something. Let's see. Uh, um, yeah, the, about the dog, the dog club. American asked to keep the steady, the study steady book open for new dogs for the
0: stud book. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So So um, the parent club for the akc which is the american kennel club um is the american version that basically tells akc what to allow and not allow with a breed so um for the anatolians it's the Anatolian shepherd dog club of america that's the parent club and they still do have an open stud book um they allow in other dogs that have three generation or more pedigrees from reciprocal registration bodies. So that means that you can't just go to Turkey and pull a dog off the street and bring it to America and say like, this is an Anatolian. That's not what an open stud book means. Um, But you can take a dog from a farmer who has FCI dogs. Um, At this point, they would be Kangals not Anatolians, which is um, another topic for another day, but mm-hmm. um, you can still bring in new, new genetics uh, from abroad and you can get them registered and have them contribute to the breed officially rather than just, um, you know, some other breeds. If you import a dog from a different country, you can, it can't register their kids. So that is nice with the Anatolian um, as far as the genetic variety goes. A lot of people in the club are concerned that the variety is not good. Um, I don't share those concerns since I have a pedigree program and I've run my dogs and many other people's dogs pedigrees through it. And there is not as much overlap as I would say 90% of purebred dog breeds. So um, I'm not so much concerned that we are not diverse enough, population we have, But um, obviously bringing in new dogs is always a good thing. If you can make sure that they're from healthy lines and they have good working instincts, Um, that's something I'll always support. (laughs) I just don't think the reason should be because all of our dogs are related in the U S that's, that's not the case. Um, But having a club, a parent club who maintains registry and works with AKC to you know, keep people honest, Um, I think is really good. I also enjoy that the breed club, you know, has standards for breeders, um, including health testing requirements, and that they have minimum age requirements, like you're not supposed to breed a dog before it is two, whether it's male or female, you're supposed to have permanent hip results prior to breeding. Um, These sorts of things really help out keeping the breed at least the people who are following the breed club recommendations it helps keep them you know on the up and up and actually trying to improve the breed rather than just breeding for breeding's sake which um is something that you know some sometimes happens so um I like that compared to other livestock guarding dog breeds some of them don't have breed clubs um some of them are going in poor directions like um other breeds that I've owned previous, which is why I've moved towards the Anatolians. Um, so I, I definitely like that there is a club. I like that there's actually two clubs, um, sort of mentioning there's a parent club for AKC, which is ASDCA, and then there's a parent club for UKC, the United Kennel Club, which is more working dog focused um, club. And um, that one is um, Antolian Shepherd Dogs International. So I'll plug them too. <laughs>
1: yeah, I believe the American but, Kennel Club has, I think it's what, the 144th registered, uh, is on the 144th dogs for registry, or The
0: Anatolian breed was, yeah. Yeah, yep. Yeah, they've registered mo- many, many breeds since. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, the Anatolian was 144 in the list of what the AKC has accepted. Yeah, okay, um, yep. And the ASDCA was a big part of that, um, getting approval through AKC. So that's why they are the parent club, as far as I can tell. <laughs> what
1: exactly so. does the American Kennel Club do and the United Kennel Club? What exactly do they do?
0: Sure. So um, the basically, they're registration bodies. They maintain um, stud books, and they keep pedigrees. So they are basically glorified record keepers. Um, a lot of people think... There's this misconception that like, oh, well, I paid for papers, so my dog is higher quality or my dog is somehow better than a shelter dog. Um, That's not always the case. Uh, There are many people breeding registered, whether it's AKC or UKC dogs, who are not doing any health testing, any temperament testing. There's no working test verification. These dogs have never met a goat, Um, for example, like just throwing that out there. So just because a dog is AKC registered doesn't mean it's a good dog. However, there is that um, paperwork to kind of back it up. So if if you have a pedigree of a puppy you just bought, you are able to do research on where your dog came from. And you can look up his great, 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 grandsire on his mother's side and see that that dog came from Turkey and he was a good working dog and he like got his championship for confirmation showing But um, he was best known for, you know, just sleeping with the goat babies. Like that was his favorite thing. You can find that information if you have certain lines. Um, Whereas if you get a dog from, say, your next door neighbor who um, has the same type of livestock you do and your kids have been around those puppies and begged and begged and begged you to get a puppy. So you're finally like, fine, we'll get a puppy. Um, But they happen to be Anatolian Great Pyrenees Crosses. So you're not going to get that same pedigree to be able to research back and look where your dog came from and where his instincts came from, or maybe, maybe where some problems come up. If your dog gets cancer at two years old, you're like, where did this come from? Sometimes there's no answers to be found period, but you're more likely to find answers that you want through a pedigree dog.
1: Um,
0: the whole point of having a registration body is to have, to go towards consistency, So, AKC and UKC both do confirmation shows, which is what people call show dogs or showing dogs. Um, That is basically where dogs of a certain breed get in a ring together. They, as my son calls it, dog prancing. They prance around the circle with their dogs. They show their dog to the judge, and the judge decides of all the dogs in the given ring at the time, whether it's all males, all females, or all the puppies. Um, They decide which one is most closely matches the breed standard of akc or ukc according to that judge so obviously this is very subjective judges are humans they are not gods um so the exact same dogs can compete against each other for you know best in show or best in breed under one judge and your dog wins and then we all compete again best in breed under a different judge and my dog wins. And that doesn't mean that the judge that picked your dog was wrong. And it doesn't mean that the judge that picked my dog was wrong. What it means is that the standard is subjective and open to interpretation and different judges will interpret it differently. So um, people who focus on dog shows generally prefer AKC for their basically they just have a slightly longer history than UKC and the AKC, um, is a tougher competition. for okay. confirmation. Uh, UKC is not, and, and AKC offers other events. They're not just about confirmation. They have obedience trials. They have agility trials. They have, um, hunting and sport dog and all kinds of cool stuff you can do with your pet dog. Um, I don't recommend really doing any of it with your working livestock guardian dog, because if you're working livestock guardian dog is, you know, doing hunt trials and chasing down birds, we have an instinct problem. <laughs> like they're not supposed to yeah. have that instinct to go do that. Um, same with barn hunt. I mean, barn hunt is tracking down rats in tubes in a barn, which is like good for terriers. It's good for earth dogs. It's not, ideal to be doing with your livestock guardian dog. So, um, you know, just considering that not all events are for all dogs is probably good, but, um, UKC is more about the total, they call it the total dog. So they want to see dogs who are not only titled as champions in confirmation ring, which is comparison to the breed standard. UKC also really, really wants you to do at least one sport through UKC and get titled with your dog through UKC. So they can say, okay, this, they have a total dog certification because your Labrador is both a confirmation champion and a hunt champion or, or and an obedience champion or agility, whatever you want to do. Um, and they, they think that that makes more well-rounded dogs. Um, they are more focused for sure on work than they are on, confirmation although that is like i said that's shifting with akc they're they're doing a lot more um, now than they used to like when i was a kid but um akc is really known for their confirmation shows they're also known for very very competitive show dog people (laughs) with akc um whereas ukc is they don't allow any professional handlers so you cannot pay someone who knows what they're doing to train and show your dog for you at uk you see, you have to do it yourself.
1: Interesting. Okay. So
0: um, it adds a different level of competition in that way. I wouldn't say it's easier because it's not easier for some people to show their own dogs than it would be to, you know, pay someone else to show their dog, you know, who actually knows what they're doing maybe (laughs) like me. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's, it's different strokes for different folks, different stuff works for different people. And, yeah. um, you know, you don't have to have a purebred dog to do sports with your dog either. You can get a PAL number through AKC, as long as your, um, mixed breed dog or mystery on dog is uh spade or neutered. You can do agility. You can do dock jumping. You can do all these other things with them. So, um, there is an element that it, it's not just about qualifying breeding animals. It's also about having fun with your dog. Cause like, that's why a lot of people have dogs, yeah. you know, <laughs> to do stuff with them. So, um, whereas the stuff I do with my dogs is like, I sit out and I read a book while they, you know, nap during the daytime and watch the goats and the pigs play. Um, some people like to go have their dog jump into a pool and see how far they can get. Um, so it's just, you know, we're all different people and there's nothing wrong with doing different stuff with your dog. There's just some things that Anatolians are better suited for and, uh, dock jumping is not one of them. (laughs)
1: Yeah. You know. Now, uh, something to consider. I got this from another blog, Louise Lienberg.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Louise.
1: Yeah. Um, by the way, that is at uh, predator-friendly-ranching.blogspot.com. If you want to check out her blogs, there's, there's a link in the show notes. Um, if you live in a warmer climate, let's say where you're from, Natalie, Southern California, you even spend some time in uh, Arizona. Uh, she recommends that you get a ak- Akabash, akabash, uh, akabash, akabash yeah. short coat. What, what, mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. So um, akbash are they essentially um, white. They're just all white uh, livestock guarding dogs from Turkey. They can have longer coats than the typical Anatolian short coat, um, but they are white. So they're not going to be like drawing the sun as much. Um in the end, if you're in like a really hot place, heat can be dissuaded by shade and water. What really gets the long-coated dogs is humidity and heat together. Um, oh yeah. Then they they can't escape it just like we can't escape it. Um so that that's like if you have a long-coated Great, Great Pyrenees and you're in Florida, let's say, um, and it's just hot and humid, that's miserable for them to be working outside in. Um so because the humidity can actually like stick to their coat and make them just really nasty. Um, so yeah, so definitely short coats can come into factor down South. Um, an Anatolian would be just as good. Um, I, I don't see why you couldn't use an Anatolian shepherd, but Akbash are slightly harder temperament than the average Anatolian. And again, I'm speaking just average sweeping, overall generalizations um, you can yeah. meet uh you can meet a great pyrenees which are regarded as like the softest temperament and livestock guarding dog you can meet one that's like just really vicious and doesn't listen and wants to bite people that's oh. obviously not a not a well-bred dog but you can find them and then you can meet likewise you can meet a char uh who is one of the more tough breeds who rolls over and submissive peas and lets anybody into your backyard So there, there is a variety dog to dog. Dogs are individuals just like we are. So while it's good to research your breed that you want to get, it's really important to research the breeder and see how they select and what they're breeding for. Cause no one is actually has the exact same breeding criteria and goals. So Mm -hmm. it's really good to find someone who matches with your situation and your priorities and, and, you know, learn from them and also perhaps get a dog from them so you know what you're getting aligns with you and what you're looking for rather than just picking the cheapest dog or the soonest available dog for you yeah well let's talk a little
1: bit about what you do you are a dog breeder not a trainer i got that confused in the last podcast you're a breeder but let's talk about what you i consider you correct me if i'm wrong you're kind of like a consultant. I go to your website to fill out an application. I call you, say, hi, Natalie. I filled out the application. We talk, you interview me, ask me a whole bunch of questions. And then based on the questionnaire, I'm sure you based off the application too, because one of the criteria is to be forthcoming on the application. And those two together, the application and your additional questions, you decide Oh, great. I'll put you on the waiting list. I'll decide what dog is for you. And obviously I still have a choice in the matter. You're kind of like the uh, consultant uh, for lack of a better word, aren't you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my primary job is to produce puppies that can work, whether that work is living with livestock and protecting them or protecting a family or property um, and then matching them to the appropriate home that's best for them. Um, mm-hmm. none of my puppies should be going to a place where they make life difficult or miserable or worse yeah. for the people they're living with, you know? So, um, I don't want my dogs to be a burden. I want them to be an asset. So I have to match and evaluate the temperament and the, you know, basic work aptitude of what they want to do with their lives to the appropriate home that has that job that the puppy already wants to do and also can, you know, thrive in that temperament environment with that's a good match for the people. So yeah. And that way I, I am sort of a consultant.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then uh, you do a school. I, I I'm guessing, once, yeah. you know, you, you, once I felt the application, once you say, and I don't know how this works, maybe you can enlighten me here. I, Cause you say, Oh, I have a dog for you. I, don't wouldn't I have to go to a school or something to learn how to train this, your online schooling.
0: Um it's recommended, but not everyone Oh, I does certainly it. would,
1: especially since I would yeah. have no clue what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, my online school is, I, I don't train dogs on it. I train humans how yeah, to okay, train yeah. their dogs. Um, uh-huh. so it's online courses, it's video based, and there's lots of handouts and infographics and forms that you can fill out. And it, it basically sets you up to know if you even need a livestock guardian dog, first of all, which is a step that so many people skip over. Um, they seem like a really good idea when you see all the pretty pictures on Instagram, but they are work. So if you don't actually need one, oh, don't okay. get one, you know? Um, yeah. so I help people work through that in my intro course, um, which is just available through the school anytime it's on demand. Um I help you figure out what your priorities are, what you need out of this dog, um, I help you understand what health testing is and why it's important and a good idea to go with a breeder who is investing in health testing their breeding dogs. Um, I go over, you know, how temperament affects the quality of life of not only the dog, but you, and if you're a screamer and you have a really, like, you just, you know, you're not trying to be mean, but if somebody gets you mad, you just like yell at them. That's just your first instinct. Um, you know, you might not be a good match for a puppy who is a softer temperament. Who, every time you yelled at them, like "Hey, come here," they like rolled over and felt sad. That would that would be a poor temperament match between the human and the dog. Oh yeah. Um, which is not has nothing to do with the marking pattern on that dog, or the coat length of that dog, or the color of that dog. So. I see a lot of people who are like, I want a brindle puppy with white socks and a white snip on their nose. And that's their top priority of how they're going to pick their puppy that they're going to hopefully have for the next decade to 15 years on their farm. Color doesn't make up for a mismatch of temperament and a low quality of life for that dog or for you. So, um, you know, I, I try to explain that to people in terms that they can. Understand like that, rather than being like color doesn't matter, because anybody who you know if you think color is important, and someone comes and tells you color doesn't matter, you're just like well I'm gonna go buy it from someone else then, and that doesn't fix your problem. That makes more problems. So I think education is a big is a big deal with these dogs, um, especially since they're kind of a new concept in the U.S. Um, You know the United States we've we've used border collies here to work our livestock for. I don't know, since people came here, like, like we brought our little dogs with us. Uh, these big dogs are newer from like about the fifties on, um, they've been here. So, um, just, you know, 70 years for some of them now. So they're, um, that's like a human generation, right? So, uh, if that, so there, there's many people with, um, many versions of how to appropriately select and work these dogs, um, Many of them can be academic in basis and not so much practical, like actual life knowledge basis um, for their in information that they're kind of setting out to the world and trying to be helpful, but maybe their ideas are a little skewed. Um, what I find useful is to actually take information from the cultures and the people who created these dogs, which is not. 40 to 50 year old white American males. Um, <laughs> that's not who made these dogs. Um, and then, you know, see how they manage them, see how they do winter versus summer because they treat the dogs differently in the different seasons. Um, and having dogs with temperaments who can handle that transition period and who can thrive in both a family environment and a working outdoor environment on large pastures. Um, you know these are things that they selected for for years and like hundreds and thousands of years overseas and in america what we're concerned about it seems like is bigger is better so bigger dogs better looking dogs and um color pattern so like a brindle gigantic dog that will intimidate my neighbors that's what i'm looking for um is what i get like i get at least two applications a year that are just People looking for a big, scary looking dog. And I'm like, Nope, sorry. I don't have one of those. Um, even if I did, <laughs> I wouldn't sell it to them. So, um, you know, it's going back on these dogs. All livestock guardian dogs have been made to protect assets, humans, livestock from outside threats, which can be human They can be wild predators. They can be domestic predators, like wild or stray dogs, like the neighbor's dog who comes and kills your chickens. Um, So, and what that means is that these dogs, they are bred and have been selected for thousands of years to do a job. And when people buy these dogs because they're big, because they're intimidating, because they look cool, because they like the history because their grandpa was Turkish and they feel that they should have a Turkish dog. Um, these are all reasons I've he- I've heard, right. <laughs> these are legit reasons that people get these dogs. Um, and then they bring them to their fourth story apartment in downtown Los Angeles, or they take them to dog parks all the time because they have to get exercise because they live in an RV or in a town home with no yard. Um, Those are not ideal circumstances for these dogs that have lived, you know, on, on land with a duty and a job that they get to perform and they feel purpose and they feel fulfilled that way. Um, and when we don't give our dogs who have been bred for thousands of years to work, when we don't give them a job to do, they give themselves a job to do. And that is a great way to ruin a good dog.
1: Yeah, I would when imagine to- uh, if you got an Anatolian that would that passed the health lines and you were in a ha- a town home, I would imagine the dog would get awfully depressed and start wreaking havoc because the dog has nothing to do.
0: Correct? Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. talking like massive like couch destruction. We're talking nuisance barking. Um, yeah, I mean, people get kicked out of their living space because their dog barks. And then their solution to that is throw a bark collar on them. Not like consider why they're actually barking. And it's because your neighbor like three apartments over was using a blender and they heard it and they're like, Oh, something's off. I'm going to bark at that. Or because the mailman came like downstairs and over three doors. Yeah. Um, you know, like we have to look at the dog and what they've been bred to do. And if you don't have land and you don't have um, threats in your neighborhood or your area. Like, I mean, if there's frequent break-ins or if you're a single woman living alone in a city and you are you work from home, you're gonna be around the dog, you're not gonna let the dog sit at home alone for eight to 12 hours a day barking constantly. Um, it can work for you, but they require management and they require purpose. And you have to give that dog management and a purpose with consistency. And that's how you make it work in a non-traditional environment, like a city or a, like a suburb. Um, they can work as, you know, property guardians on, you know, estates. They can work as property guardians on, you know, small acreage, even like with a half acre backyard in a suburb. They can work that way, but you have to be very cognizant of what the dog is that you have. And what the job is that they're doing. And if you don't give them that job to do, they're going to bark at everything that moves and makes sound in your neighborhood and oh, drive yeah. your neighbors. Absolutely bonkers. And that's not good for, that makes the breed look bad. That makes you look bad. It makes your dog look bad. And your dog's just trying to do its job that it made up for itself. Cause you didn't give it one. Well, <laughs> that,
1: that brings up an interesting incident that I just got reminded of. I was a little kid and because I'm blind, I, ha- I, well, my parents should have actually had me use a cane when I was five years old, but that's another story. <laughs> so what they did is they said, Kevin, you're going to walk to the bus. Here's the fence. Cause we lived in a cul-de-sac and Then I had to walk along the curb until I found a sidewalk. And I kind of knew where the sidewalk was just cause I've been mental mapping my, a good chunk of my life. So when I stepped on the sidewalk, I put my hand on the fence, dragged my hand along it until there was a real distinctive crack in the fence. Well, what do you know? One day a dog was barking directly at me, and I knew because of people's conversations, and I could hear it too, the dog was tied to a chain all day. Do you think that mm. dog was just trying to do its job? That dog was lonely? That dog was depressed? What do you think was happening? I know you didn't know the neighbors, but just based on that, uh, what I told you.
0: Well, a dog that's on a chain that wants to move and can't move is definitely going to be frustrated. Um, so yeah, it, it makes sense. They were, you know, barking. That's a good way the dogs can get frustration out.
1: Oh, if it, it, it yell was and swear, like it going to bite bark. my hand.
0: <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that, unfortunately that can happen. Um, and yes, I, I don't recommend grabbing a fence and, and, um, following a fence down the
1: no, road <laughs> no I should have been using there's my dogs cane. unknown
0: dogs <laughs> but yeah. yeah no I don't I don't that isn't I mean and a barking dog is just warning off it, it's not like a, a barking dog is not the same as like a man in the bar saying like let's take this outside like that's that's not what they're doing they're communicating right they're being like hey I'm here don't come over here this is mine not yours go away I don't like you Um it's not like an active threat that something's incoming usually but um yeah that's probably the job the dog gave itself was to bark at anything that moved going down the street so um you were just the thing (laughs) that was moving down the street so it was barking at you Um, yeah that dog was always
1: chained up and obviously we didn't think much of it back in the 80s but i think we would now that we're more aware of those type of things
0: yeah, there are there are laws now that would prevent that from happening. And there should be. Yeah, well, laws are a funny thing. Um, I so, mean, I'm like fairly with, conservative
1: with, myself, but I uh, to a point I kind of uh, I don't know, I kind of I am a little bit of an, I kind of agree with the animal rights activists to a point in, in matters like this but yeah. uh, anyway um, let's talk about dog training. I know you don't train them but I'm sure you obviously had experience and I've read a lot about yeah no science I have for. trained
0: dogs for other people It's just at this point I have enough dogs on my property that it's not advantageous for me to take orders yeah. um, so that's why I do yeah, you've obviously them trained <laughs> your own dogs
1: obviously yeah yeah uh, I've trained yeah.
0: And so I've trained um, more than 10 now. So um, oh, okay. I consider myself to know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they um, they are different than house dogs. Um, I am a big advocate of consistency over time, which means that the rules that you set in place the day you bring that puppy home should be the rules that they will be held to when they are 100 plus pounds. So don't pick that puppy up and put it on your lap don't bring that puppy into your bed if you don't want a 140 pound dog in your bed in a year and a half, you know, um, you know, rules like, like we don't push on fences. You might think it's cute that that puppy dug through the fence and came to find you while you were feeding chickens one day. But in the end, that's a bad habit and you're rewarding it by petting them and not just putting them straight back and patching the hole. So, um, you know, there's lots of easy ways to you know, be nice to a puppy and kill them with niceness. Because if you are think it's it's funny or it's cute for a puppy to escape the the pen, but um, when it's a grown up adult and it escapes the pen and it goes in the road and gets hit by a truck, you help that dog get into trouble. Like the, there's a significant amount of owner responsibility when bad things happen to animals in our care. That's just part of animal husbandry 101. So it's, I think it's very important for people to understand and respect the fact that you are the leader and it is your job to set the pace for that puppy from day one. Um, So they don't get special treatment. They will get special treatment from your other dogs as a puppy. I like to call it the puppy card and I didn't invent that, but when they are a card carrying puppy they get, you know, lighter correction. They get, uh, you know, a little bit more leeway on stuff that they do wrong from the other dogs, but they shouldn't get that from you. Now I'm not saying you should go hit a dog. You should never hit one of these dogs. They never forget and they'll never forgive you. Um, but you need to be consistent in your rules. You need to be consistent with your verbal and maybe leash corrections. And you need to be consistent with your redirection of bad behavior. You also need to reinforce proper behavior with these dogs when they're puppies. So if they're sitting calmly with your chickens, you need to be like, "That's a good dog. Like, good job." And like, throw them a treat, throw them a bone, throw them something good. Um, that's often the the forgotten piece of the puzzle. I think is the reinforcing what you actually want them doing. Um, so, but training is, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to train you. Your first livestock guardian dog is going to teach you more than you teach them. And it takes a certain level of humility and letting go of your ego (laughs) to let that happen. Um, Some people can let that happen and are very successful. Some people cannot let that happen. And their life is frustration if they continue having these breeds of dogs who have been bred selectively for a long, long time to think for themselves and make their own critical decisions. Um, you, You can't call one of these dogs off of a bear with a hundred percent recall because their brain is telling them get that bear away from your sheep get that bear away from your sheep and like oh mom's calling we'll get to her when we get to her we need to get that bear away from our sheep and they will do what their brain and instincts tell them more than what you are telling them to do usually especially in face of a threat so you want to have good fencing, you want to have good boundary training on your dog so they don't f- hop the fence and follow that dog through five more properties to get that bear away from their sheep, because that is still getting the bear away from the sheep, just running the bear through other people's land. Um, sometimes other people don't like a dog running a bear through their backyard. <laughs> a lot of times they don't like that. So, um, you know, I, I think most of training with livestock guarding dogs is, empowering them to use their instincts in the proper direction. And it's also really important to set them up for success by giving them basic. Oh, sorry. Um, by giving them, you know, a basic way and a blueprint for life, which is you stay where I put you, you stay in the fence, you don't chew on the lamb's wool. You don't chase livestock like those types of things like that's their blueprint they should get in their first day with you and you should reinforce it for the rest of their life. So they have a solid foundation and know what you expect of them and what you like and what you don't like, because once they know that they can do it.
1: So would you say that training dogs is very similar to parenting based on your experience? Yes,
0: <laughs> yes. Except that livestock guarding dogs are trained to be uh, critical and logical thinkers. And some children, like my eldest, are not. Oh, so <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's, it can be a, a challenge uh, with, you know, these dogs because they're not like a Labrador that you had as a kid. Or they're not like a German Shepherd that you might have had as a kid. They are a different type of dog and their brains are wired differently. So that does take adjustment time. But what I have found is that they are very consistent in, in type and brain if they're well-bred. So once you understand them and they understand you, it's actually a very easy relationship to maintain and build over time with the pack of dogs or the, just the singular singular dog that you, that you have working with you. So, um, but no, it is very similar to parenting. You need to be consistent. They need to understand the rules. You can't just you can't just punish a kid for running across the parking lot when you never told them don't run across the parking lot, right? Like that's not fair. A lot of people correct their dogs or punish their dogs, which is not something I recommend for doing something they never told the dog it wasn't allowed to do, and that's really not fair. So no. just like with kids, you know, it's it's not fair to have. You know the expectation that they will read your mind. You have to communicate clearly what is and is not expected of them, and what isn't is not allowed, so that they can do the right thing.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about uh, because in this blog by Louise Leidenberg, um, she talks about enter you know introducing puppies to the adult dogs. She recommends to put them in a kennel for a few days and uh it's a you know it's for what i got the impression of you can wait for eight to twelve weeks although i think you would want to introduce them sooner than that but i think the point was if they're not getting along let the dog let the puppy rest let it relax and keep it in the kennel Uh, where would you draw the line on all that since you've had a lot of experience
0: um i will introduce a puppy and part like physically to the dogs and then if i'm not there i will contain the puppy in a puppy pen okay for the first few weeks um it's not like none of these dogs are gonna go kill a puppy like that's not what she's saying what she's saying is that if she's not supervising the puppy what i believe she's saying is if she's not there to supervise the puppy and make sure that everybody's getting along that the puppy is contained in a safe manner away from the stock and the other dogs and then if she's there the puppy's out and learning the ropes So yeah, yeah, that works. It's, it's a proven method. It works great.
1: Now signs that uh, your puppy is getting along with the adult dogs is wagging the tail between its legs, butt sniffing, relaxation. The puppy's very submissive to the adults. And I understand from reading this blog. The adult dogs are pretty good at setting boundaries. Obviously, you, the trainer, have to do it, too. But, I, you know, from this blog, it sounds like the adult dogs are pretty good at doing that, especially the female dogs. Am I correct?
0: Ideally, yeah. Um, The issue is that if you only have, like, if you don't have a functioning pack, you only have one dog that's an adult, and you add a puppy, there's no guarantee that that established adult that you have is actually wanting or willing to train a puppy. So that can manifest in two ways. That can either manifest in the dog, just letting the puppy get away with whatever they want to do, which is not good for the puppy, or that can manifest in the dog overcorrecting, possibly injuring the puppy, um, when it does anything wrong and just scaring the puppy and making them not bond with the livestock, not bond with the other dogs. And then you have a, essentially a scared, crapless pet puppy. That can't work because they're just scared. They think anytime they go out in the pasture with the goats or the sheep that they're going to get alpha rolled and hurt. So um, human attention and human monitoring are important factors when adding any animal, livestock included. But you, you need to know what your dog is and isn't. And if you don't have a training dog, you are doing all the training yourself. And you don't need to push that off onto a dog that doesn't want that job. But yeah, if you have, if you have a a female who is used to having puppies around, yeah, they will probably be a good trainer dog for you, but um, you can't, you can't guarantee it.
1: What about uh, in the blog? She said that it's recommended that uh, the puppy gets you gets introduced to the younger males because they're very quick to welcome in the new puppy.
0: Um, she has a lot of dogs and she also runs a tough temperament breed, um, the knots. So uh-huh. I'm sure that that works for her. Um, if you're introducing a male dog, I don't have any reason why the females would have a problem with that. Uh-huh. Where it gets iffy sometimes is um, female and female intros can be a little rough usually not day one or day two, but like a couple of months down the road. And especially when the younger one is coming into heat for the first time. So sexual maturity with females can be rough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's Louise's blog is great. Um, she has a lot of info. She's had these dogs. I think almost as long as I've been alive. So I trust her words and I'm not going to, go
1: against anything she says no the dogs are supposed to live with the livestock and i would imagine that if a wolf or something comes and tries to harm the livestock i'm sure these anatolians or who you know hopefully a good trained dog will go out and either chase the wolf away or the bear or whatever predators out there or possibly even hurt it to the point of killing it. Am I correct?
0: Yeah, so the main function of the livestock guardian dog is to prevent predator conflicts from happening. Um, they do that by scent and marking, so by urinating and defecating around the edges of your property line or your pasture um, you know, boundaries. And then they also do perimeter barking, which is them sitting and barking outwards, announcing their presence to other predators. Um, this is how they communicate in the language that the predators can actually understand. I'm here. Don't come here. This is my territory. If you come to my territory, things are going to go down. Just stay away. Um, That usually is enough. If you have enough dogs for your predator load to keep dogs or um, other predators from coming in on your livestock, because there's usually an easier meal option elsewhere. Um, when you have, a one dog and you have a pack of, you know, five wolves, your one dog is not going to keep five wolves from coming to your property. That's just not a fair fight. The wolves know it. They'll come kill your dog and then eat your sheep. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, when you have a single LGD, it's your job as the human to back them up. Um, not if you're blind with a rifle, but like, if you're a sighted human, probably with a rifle, Um, once you build up a pack, like I have over the last 11 years, 11 and a half years, um, you sleep better at night for sure. Um, but yes, if a, if a bear, I've had a bear come in, I've had a wolf come in. Um, our biggest issue is actually cougars, not bears or wolves. Um, but if they are dumb enough to come into my pens, my dogs will chase them out. And if they don't run out at top speed and get away from my animals the dogs can definitely use force
1: have they done that before or kill them um have they used force on the predators before okay and did it work
0: uh well with those ones (laughs) (laughs) um (coughs) sorry um no i it's a last resort they are not killing machines they are not aggressive dogs um, they don't want to go fight usually. Um, but they are territorial and they are protecting what's theirs. So if they have to protect what's theirs, just like, you know, a mom lifting a car off her baby, um, the adrenaline kicks in and they will do whatever they have to do to eliminate yeah. threats. That's just their nature and their instincts at work. Yeah. Um, that is, that's not to say that their, their goal in life is to go kill bears or kill wolves. Like that. that's not what the dogs are worried about. The dogs are worried about, you know, keeping every other threat out of their area. So just a couple
1: more questions. Um, is, okay. So your dogs you are obviously supposed to live with the livestock. You're not supposed to have them in the house. I don't know what you do when it gets 30, 40, 50 degrees below zero, because it does get that cold, especially where you're at near Missoula. Um, but uh, can the children go pet the dogs when they come home from school, if they want to, can the dogs yeah. play with the kids? Where do you draw that boundary?
0: Yeah. My kids hang out with my dogs constantly. Um, oh, okay. And the dogs also by, def- you know, by just association keep things from happening to my kids, which is nice. Um okay. when you live in a high predator area. Um, there's no reason that you can't go touch, love on, walk on a leash, feed by hand if you are really of a mind to your life's like guardian dogs. Um there's no limits to what you can or can't do with them, you know, as long as you train them appropriately. Um <clears throat> that said, I I don't recommend training them to bite humans, like bite work, ring sport. Um, they're, they're not going to have the off command that you need for liability reasons, uh, to do that sport safely. Um, like if, if you have them biting a decoy and the decoys, you know, arm slips out of the guard and they bite the actual decoy and you call the dog off and the dog doesn't come off, that's then a liability. You're getting sued. Uh, That's a bad day. So, and it's also really just not great to train these dogs who are thinking for themselves and working independently of human command most of their adult lives to bite humans. Like that's not really a, that's not a good idea, uh, generally speaking. Um, So if you enjoy owning a home or owning a property and having assets that are not, uh, you know, taken from you by a judge after your dog mauls someone, uh maybe don't train your dog to bite humans. <laughs> yeah. But um no, my kids are very involved with the dogs. My husband and I go out and we hang out with the dogs. They know us. Um they know our voices at a distance. We know their barks at a distance. So, like we know who's barking and who's doing what. Yeah. Um you know, they are very much a part of our family environment. The fact that they live outdoors doesn't mean that we care about them any less. Um they are huge assets to our property and our livestock and, um, our family. So, um, you know, I, I bring my girls inside to have puppies whenever that happens. Um, because I like a clean controlled environment. You'll find some breeders whelp in a barn. Some breeders let them dig their own dens and whelp in a hole in the ground. Um, you know, that, that is, their prerogative, their, their dog. I don't pay their feed bill. So I don't really get an opinion on that. Um, but I prefer to have a more controlled environment for my puppies to make sure that they're not getting cord ill to make sure that they're gaining weight, um, getting handled, getting used to being handled by people, learning that people are friends, not foes, um, all that sort of stuff that I can do because I have them in a controlled space. Um, but yeah, my, my kids are involved with the, the puppies to the adults. Um, my kids understand when the dogs are, you know, allowed to be in a certain area and when they're not and what to do. Um, and my kids know to get behind the dogs if something happens, like if a strange person comes up the driveway, get behind a dog. If a bear comes, get behind a dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, um, so and it's they are a very different type of dog than most pet dogs. I know we all like to assume that our dog would die for us. Um, and if someone broke into our home and we weren't there, that they would, you know, scare the person away and not show them where we keep the good jewelry, um, in practice and in real life, that's, that's not always the way that that goes. Right. So, um, you know, having realistic expectations and understanding what dogs are bred for and respecting that I think is a really good idea. But I know the dogs that I have and the dogs that I breed have what they need to, you know, follow through on their threats of violence against bears and wolves. And I also know that they will completely be comfortable dying for me. If it came down to it, if I, left the gun at home for whatever reason. And it's, it's me or them against a bear or a wolf or a couver or a stranger with a gun, which has happened on our house. Um, my dogs will get between me and whatever threat is, there is. And my dogs will absolutely cash that check and have no problems or qualms about doing it. So, um, they're serious dogs. They're not for everyone. Not everyone needs a dog that will do that for them um, like people in apartments, uh, especially if your dog is a stronger will and mind than you are, and your dog decides that your next door neighbor is a threat. That's a bad time, (laughs) especially if you have a dog that's willing to die for you. Um, so you just, you know, I think it takes a good amount of self-awareness to know your situation, like situational awareness and self-awareness. Can you handle a 140 pound dog with a mind of its own? Um, can your ego handle that? Can, can you work with them and not against them? And if they ever work against you, do you know how to handle that? (laughs) Um, And if you say no, that's totally fine. Like not every dog is for every person. You can find a breed that'll work for you and do what you need it to do without being so intense maybe. Um, And I, I try to advocate for, you know, appropriate breed match and appropriate puppy to person match because You know, there's no reason for you to put yourself in a position of not being ready for something to happen just because you really, really liked this podcast and liked this breed of dog. (laughs) So, um, you know, um, you know, think, think before you buy any animal like a milk cow, like you're going to be milking a lot. You know, there's, there's responsibility that comes with that. If they're in milk, you you have a full-time job basically managing their feed and making sure that they don't get mastitis. And make like, where are you going to put all that milk? You don't, you can't buy another deep freezer. Like where are you going to put it all? <laughs> uh, with these dogs, it's, you know, it's a big dog. You get to feed it. You get to take it to a vet. You have to keep your, at very minimum, you have to keep your rabies vaccines up to date so that if your dog ever does, God forbid, bite someone or more likely get bitten by a raccoon or a bear or whatever, that you can show proof my dog is vaccinated for rabies and you can quarantine instead of shipping their head off to a lab. Cause when you have to ship yeah. the head off for a rabies call, um, they're dead. So you don't want to lose your dog over that bullshit when you have the option to just vaccinate them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so there, there are, there are reasons that we do things the way we do them. And we are in an environment that invites some sort of chaos with the local fauna and the way I mitigate that chaos or potential chaos is by having these dogs, um, and it, it's worked out famously for us. Um, we have so many clients who like, will just email me, um, our last litter is now six months old. I got a call a month ago that she not only got a bear who was charging her as a five month old puppy to stop, but then ran it away from the house. And, um, it was dark and the owner did not know what was happening at first. She was leaving out the back door with carrots for her horses. And the bear was between the house and the horse barn. And this puppy ran up to the bear. The bear backed up and then started running for the puppy. So my client was like, I thought I had a dead dog. Cause I thought she was being stupid and risky and for no good reason. So, and bears will do that. They'll fake charge a lot. Um, I'm not sure if she had um cubs or not but yeah the bear charged the puppy and the puppy stood her ground stood still and growled and barked and barked and barked and the bear stopped and turned around and ran and the puppy chased her off so to have a dog that is not yet you know i don't know she's probably she was probably about 60 pounds when she did that (laughs) that's great (laughs) she's doing her job and the puppy got you know a a t-bone i think and was just like thrilled over the moon that she got to do her job the clients as she came back prancing like a peacock and just like strutting around the yard. Like I did that. I'm so cool. Like that's what these dogs want to be doing. It's not cruel. It's not mean. Um, it's not putting them under like undue stress or risk. They want to do the job they've been bred to do and they like it. So if you have a dog with the drive to do the job, the temperament that matches the family, like this one matches her family. Um, it's a great match and it's a it's a good feeling to know that i made that puppy and sent it to the right place so i could go do a job and that my client is not scratched up mauled or dead from that bear because she would have just walked right into it it was dark and it was a black bear she wouldn't have even seen it that's pretty <laughs> you know? dramatic like, isn't it yeah it when you hear nice, these stories
1: have you ever read the book where the red fern grows i'm sure you yeah. have Do you ever feel like, uh, do you ever feel like Wilson Rawls in that book when you're training these dogs and you hear these,
0: I mean, they're different types of dogs, but you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to breed with a purpose dogs that are supposed to do a job and then to get feedback like, Hey, the dog that you sold me to do this job is doing this job and it's doing it great. That's Mm. awesome. But oh. equally, it's also great to hear back from people I sold a puppy to who are like, she's doing this weird thing and I don't know how to stop it. And like the fact that they trust me and will will email me or call me when they have a problem with a dog that I sold them, that's also just as good to me because then I can actually support them and help them work through the problem rather than them, you know, shooting the dog or dumping it at a shelter or, you know, doing things that other people – in the past have sometimes done with, um, you know, dogs, they don't value. So my job is not just to like set you up with a puppy. My job is to support you and the puppy and make sure you guys are successful. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's the greatest job ever. Um, I thought I was going to be a vet when I was a little kid, this is a way better job. <laughs> I well, yeah, I was going to ask
1: you. I, I want to ask you how you got into prepping because you do more than dog training. Well, get. How do you think a blind person can train a dog? Or do you think a blind person would need a little help? Uh, know you know better than need me. Help.
0: I think you would need like a trained adult. I don't think you should be training a puppy because you're not going to pick up on the subtle stuff that they're doing. Like you're not going to see when they're staring down the chicken getting ready to pounce it. You won't. You had no idea that's going mm. on. You can't yeah. see what, is happening so no um you would want like a trained bulletproof adult working dog if you needed one um and then even then you would want you would want one that is like very very well trained for voice commands yeah so but um yeah it's just it's different right when you have different abilities to to find the right thing for you but yeah i mean you would you would definitely need a trained one for sure i
1: I think if i was a single and a homesteader i would be very nervous to get a dog for that reason uh yeah i couldn't pick up on the subtle commands like you said or, you know because i'm sure a lot of it's visual i'm sure i could pick up on the extensive barking or excessive barking i could go out and well, say, it's well,
0: a lot of responsibility um yeah. if you if they're if you have a single dog and they're barking and they need your help and you can't help them and they die or they get deathly injured um that's not a good feeling for anybody no. so
1: yeah i um Oh, go
0: ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you're, you're fine. Go ahead. Well, do you
1: think the, uh, Al- and maybe you don't know the answer and I know we got to hurry up here, but, uh, do you think the, uh, Al Anatolas would make good guide dogs or not? Do you have any idea? No, Okay.
0: no, their defense drive is too high. Um, there's a reason that labs are the most popular. Okay. Now they're friendly.
1: <laughs> let's get on to the good stuff. I meant to do this at the beginning of the podcast, but you had kind of indicated that you were in a hurry, but, uh, how did you get into homesteading? Cause you don't do just breeding dogs. You're, a, you consider yourself a homesteader. Why do you consider yourself one? And how did you get into the, uh, breeding dogs and homesteading and those type of things?
0: Sure. So, um, I think that homesteading is just producing some of what you consume and aspiring to produce more of what you consume all the time. Um, we raise chickens for eggs and meat. We raise sheep for meat and we um, have a dairy cow and we um, have cooney Coonie pigs for meat and for uh, breeding stock sales. So yeah, um, I'm definitely more livestock focused. I can kill almost any plant. We do have a small orchard we're building up, but um, as far as gardening goes, I'm the worst. So <laughs> I don't focus on that. I just, I trade bacon for uh, produce, which is great bartering. Wow. And um, yeah, as far as home thing, I've always liked animals, um, but I always understood that animals without a purpose um, don't survive hard times. So um, you know, like people who have like a bunch of pet cows, if shit hit the fan, they'd have to eat their pet cows and they'd have to serve a purpose. Yeah. So yeah. um it's I have like always that's gonna just... happen
1: too this winter, but we won't go
0: there. <laughs> For some people, maybe. Um, so yeah, I've just always approached it with as from more of a practical standpoint of you know, if I bring an animal here, it can live here the rest of its life. It will have the top quality food and vet care and, um, you know, everything it needs to be successful. Um, I don't take drastic, um, interventions. So if, a uh, say like a pig gets pneumonia, I will medicate it appropriately for pneumonia. I will give it antibiotics. I will give it warm, dry bedding. I will give it fresh water. I will, give it what it needs, but I'm not taking that pig to my veterinarian for a $600 vet bill. If it's likely not going to, you know, make a difference because I can do everything for that pig. My vet can do at home. I can sink an IV catheter. I can, I can give it medication. I know how to do intermuscular injections. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice a year's worth of feed for the chickens to try to save one pig who is not trying to survive with everything it needs to survive. Um, I think a lot of homesteading has turned into more of a pet style, like a vanity sort of thing. And um, I mean, if you can make homesteading and growing your own produce and growing your own meat, cool. Like I'm all about that.
1: That's what I've always Um, thought it meant.
0: Well yeah, but it, I mean it's not glamorous the way our grandparents did it, you know so um, like for dinner, Grandma would go out and like just chop a head off a chicken and bring it inside. Um, people aren't really liking that version of it as much <laughs> lately. and um, you know there's a lot of people who you know the animals are more their pets than food. Um, so there are definitely differences that people take with the animals. Um, I have never ever withheld care or medication or anything like that from any of my animals, but I'm also not going to take a, a meat animal. like I'm already ruining the meat by giving it penicillin and giving it like you know injections. Um, I'll sacrifice the meat for the animal. I'm not gonna sacrifice other animals for one animal yeah. if that makes sense. so like if yeah, you're sick you're getting pulled from the herd immediately. If I detect that you're messed up, I don't want you getting that potentially communicable disease to everybody else. So you are isolated, you are medicated, you are fed and watered and you have dry bedding and you are checked regularly, but I'm not, I'm not going to haul you off to town to go, you know, potentially die in a vet's office for a lot of money. Um, That just, it's not, it doesn't make sense. So how did you get farming. into homesteading? Um, we, my husband had a property in Phoenix on a county island where we could uh, have goats. Like basically in the city, we had goats. Um, I convinced him that he needed goats. This is back when we were dating for his overgrown grass in his backyard. It was like a jungle in the summer in Phoenix. And because like monsoon season, the grass goes really high. Yeah. So I convinced him he needed some goats to, to eat down the, the grass. And then um, I convinced him that those shabby goats that we bought at first weren't good enough. And we needed to get some registered Nigerian dwarf dairy goats. And then um, we moved up to Montana with a herd of like 11 Nigerian dwarf goats that were worth a lot of money altogether. And then I needed to protect them. So I bought my first livestock guardian dog. We bought a bunch of chicks. Like baby chicks from a hatchery that first year. I um, just kind of took off from there. So, yeah, my husband's more the prepper type. I'm more the homesteady type. So, now just so you
1: um, know, uh, or, and, and just so the audience knows, you're from Southern California. No, you're not a liberal. Just to make I'm, that clear, I'm you're not liberalizing not- <laughs> Montana. No. Um, but you are from Southern California. You went to college in California, and then you ended up in Arizona. I'm, I guess, yeah. if my memory can ser- uh, serves me. Something happened in California where you decided to change your major, and they. Yeah, to-
0: I had to go to Arizona to get nursing school prerequisites. So yeah. that's then I met my okay. husband, and we moved to Montana instead of going to nursing school. So yeah. it all worked out famously. Yeah. So. What
1: uh, Two more questions, and uh, if you can, stay with me real quick after the podcast. Um, what do you like about being a prepper slash homesteader?
0: I like the sense of security that I have where should the world stop and money stop coming in, my kids will be fed. My kids will be clothed. We won't have drastic consequences. We won't be asking the government for help. We'll have it under control no matter kind of what comes down the pike. And I do like having my kids grow up in an environment where they understand where their food comes from. I think it's really important. And it's something that uh, not many kids today get. So while they may not appreciate mucking out stalls and throwing food to chickens right now, I think when they're adults, they will appreciate the experiences that they had. And I think that's worth a
1: lot. I think it's going to be harder when they get to teenagers, especially, well, I'll just go ahead and say this since uh, this is a podcast. Uh, Most of us males, when we get to be teenagers, we'll want, you know, if we lived in your house on the country, we would want to go in and chase the ladies in town, wouldn't we?
0: Um, My kids are already basically doing that, which is ridiculous. So... (laughs) Like they come home and tell me about their girlfriends at school and it drives me insane. And I'm like, you are too young to have girlfriends. Go feed the chickens. So, <laughs> I yeah. Remember it's, uh... when I was a, when I was
1: a teenager, I actually <laughs> went and lived with my sister, my oldest sister who still lives on a farm. Uh, they, well, the land's, well, we won't go there, but it, it's uh, farming land and they were farming on it mm-hmm. at the time. And my job was to actually drive the tractor, which some of you think, how does a blind person drive a tractor? Well, my brother-in-law just told me to stop and go, stop, go, stop, go, turn left, turn right, whatever, Uh, giving me commands. And then, uh, you know, then I had to go siphon tubes and I thought, gosh, I want to go into town and chase ladies when this work was over. But I didn't have that luxury, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a lifestyle choice that my children did not make for themselves. So if they do not make it for themselves when they are grown, I will not be offended. So it's all good. But you're teaching but, them um, the good
1: worth it. I actually enjoyed working on the farm, even though I wanted to chase ladies. I, I did yeah. enjoy the farm, actually.
0: No, it's, it's all good. Yeah. So.
1: Well, uh, last question. What gun would you recommend for somebody in your situation? Who is a homesteader slash pepper?
0: Um, You know, there's handguns that I think it really, the grip actually makes a big difference. Um, Because if you're not comfortable using it, you're never going to actually use it. And if you're, or at least you're not going to practice with it. And if you're not comfortable practicing with your firearm, you're not going to be very good when push comes to shove. So um, I think something that you're comfortable holding, comfortable handling is important. Even if you're, you know, a man, if you, you know, find one that you're actually comfortable using versus just like what all your buddies have. I think that's a good thing. Um, as far as rifles, we, uh, my husband, after coming back from Iraq is a staunch believer in the AK 47 and 74 series. Um, because when his gun jammed, theirs didn't. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I mean, we're, we're, patriotic american people but that doesn't mean that americans make the best version of that gun so i would take an ak over an ar any day of the week (laughs) so do you and your
1: husband go clay pigeon shooting do you go target shooting no shooting for so we do
0: we do targets um we have basically our entire property above um a certain level is clay which is great for target shooting because it's just a built-in backstop so um so we, we do a lot of shooting, a lot of uh, just paper targets. Um, sometimes we get creative and get like the zombie targets that bleed or whatever, but um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a lot of target practice and it's a lot of um, just keeping all the sites accurate and um, working with the s- different scopes. So keeping up on that is um, a job when you have yeah. multiple options. So um, yeah, that's what we do. We don't go to a range usually and we, We practice around our place because that's where we're using our guns. We're not going to a range to plink around. Ammo's too expensive, but we do keep our skills up for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, anything else that I have missed? Anything you want to cover? Any last words you want to have before this podcast ends?
0: Sure. Um, Anybody who's interested in livestock guardian dogs, whether for their homestead or their family or property, um, I am always happy to talk about them. So you can, um, contact me through the website, apexanatolians.com or, um, you know, you can find me on Facebook too, but, um, if you have any questions, I will shoot you straight. I won't BS you and I won't just try to sell you a dog. (laughs) So that's my promise to you. Um, I talk more people out of dogs than I sell dogs. So, um, but I just, I think it's really important for people to get the right dog for them. Not one of my dogs. If, especially if it's not going to be a good fit. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's all. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, perhaps we'll talk about goats next time. If I have you or <laughs> something to that effect. Yeah, sure. By the way, what tastes better goat milk or dairy milk or, or cow milk?
0: Ooh. Um, I actually prefer goat milk, but it's, oh. uh, it's sweeter and it's higher fat. So it's better for like cheese and butter usually. But, you know, breed matters and care matters. So their diet matters a lot. If you have them eating um, scrub brush, their milk isn't going to taste very good.
1: Ah, well, that's uh, that's for another podcast. But I will talk to you later, folks. (laughs)